0: If you have your Bibles, let's turn to two places. Uh, We're going to turn to uh, Jonah chapter 3 and then 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Jonah is going to be in your Old Testament. 2 Corinthians is going to be in your New Testament. We're going to spend about half of our time uh, in each of those places this morning. Um, So we have been, over the last couple weeks walking through the book of Jonah, and uh, what we're trying to do uh, can be a little difficult, I think, at times, especially with a, a book that is uh, so familiar to to so many. Uh, we're, we're striving to make this more than a book about a guy who gets swallowed by a fish. Uh, what we are trying to strive to do is is see great and powerful things about God's relentless love for for both Jonah, who's his prophet, uh, but also for the people of Nineveh, the people who are far from God and so we get to see both in this beautiful story about how God treats his own and then God's desire to love uh, those who are far from him and and I think there's much to learn about how how God's calling us into his adventure and then his desire to declare his his glory through offering. Uh, salvation and and I think this is really important to us because without seeing God's movement in his word, we're left kind of wondering and guessing uh his heart and really his mission and and so thankfully, we have His word to guide us towards uh, really what matters in life and and so chapter one, uh, in case you're just kind of joining us in this journey, chapter one opens uh, with God commissioning Jonah into uh, action by going to Nineveh uh, and warning the Assyrians, this, who are the great enemies of the Hebrews at this time, the Israelites, uh, to warn them of God's judgment that unless they repent and turn from their evil ways, God's wrath is coming upon them. Uh, and, and what we're really going to see highlighted next week is Jonah's hatred uh, for these people will will be larger than his desire to obey God. And, and so Jonah heads in the opposite direction. He gets in a boat, uh, he goes to sleep. God sends this storm, right? Uh, and it is breaking up the boat. It is going to sink. Uh, eventually, uh, Jonah is thrown overboard uh, against the wishes of the mariners who are operating in the boat. Um, He's thrown overboard, the, the the storm starts to cease, uh, and God appoints a fish to come swallow him, right? And that's usually where we get off board, right? We're like, well, oh, this story just became a fairy tale. Uh, and and what we are telling you is that it absolutely is not, that nothing is impossible with God. God appoints this fish, uh, and then that led us into chapter 2 last week where uh, Jonah, we get to walk through a prayer of Jonah's realization of what's going on and so through it he acknowledges that the discipline of god has come upon him Uh, he says this this is my fault god is disciplining me in his mercy he hasn't ended me Uh, he said when all else was lost god rescued me and and in that and what we thought was interesting was in that process of his rescuing uh, God uh, puts them in the belly of a fish, which at the time would not have seemed like a rescue at all. Uh, but it was part of this process. And, and we ended last week in this really beautiful moment, this, this touching, intimate moment with God and Jonah as the fish vomits him out uh, onto dry land. And so we got that mental image, right? Uh, if you've ever had a kid throw up on you, uh, I think you can appreciate in part uh, what Jonah was experiencing and and so this morning though what we're going to get to see is is God's purpose experience in what I think is the climax of this book uh, because next week I'll just tell you next week is going to end uh, don't don't read ahead yet okay but next week it's going to end and you're gonna be like that seemed like a very open ending uh, because we don't get a nice little bow to close up this book. We just kind of end. And so uh, I, I tend to believe that chapter 3 is the climax of uh, the book of Jonah because uh, we, we've said that there's a danger in these verses uh, in, in not seeing the main things that are at work. Uh, that if we only viewed this book through the lens of Jonah, we're going to miss out on really what God is doing. And so in chapter 3, this is where we get to see what God is really doing. Uh, Because all along, His desire has been to warn the people of Nineveh to turn from their evil ways. And in this chapter, they're actually going to hear that message, and then they're going to respond to it. Uh, And so we get to celebrate not the people of Nineveh and not Jonah, even though there will be moments when we want to say, way to go for both. But what we get to see is God's incredible love for, for people. Uh, and And so he will be glorified this morning in the hearts uh, that are rendered unto him and so and so because of that, we get to see his purpose felt and expe- and, and, and experienced and so uh, let 's pray and then then we 'll get going. Father, we come to you, and we thank you for your word this morning. we thank you that you 've given us your word this morning, and that we are not left guessing what stirs your heart. And so we lay claim to it today, acknowledging that we have a hard time um, at at times understanding or submitting to your word. And so I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit today that we would see you at work here. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Alright, so here's, here's what we should realize right out of the gate. Okay? Um, that this book would be half as long if Jonah would have just responded in chapter 1 the way he responded in chapter 3. okay? Because you're going to be like, wait, I think I've seen these words before and you have, you just saw them in chapter 1. But but if that was the case, we would be robbed of seeing uh, God's mercy and his discipline with Jonah, uh, thereby robbing us of understanding the ways that God treats us. And so we're going to, for a moment in a really weird way, we're gonna thank God that Jonah's an idiot. Okay? Uh, that that's what we're gonna do. And so so the first two verses of chapter one and chapter three, they're they're almost identical. Uh when we get to chap verse three, that's where we start to see the butterfly effect uh taking us into two seemingly separate situations. And so let's let's explore chapter three, uh which is I think uh, if Jonah was to look at you today and he said, hey, you know, what I should have done was this. Uh, but what I did do was not this. And so, so here we go. Then, okay, so then, chapter 3, verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Okay, so if you like to underline, you like to look smart in your Bible uh, or circle, circle those words. The second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Okay, that's that's what he tells him to do. Okay, and I don't I don't want us to miss this because much of our focus this morning is going to be the response of the Ninevites. I want us to take a moment and I want us to consider God's treatment of Jonah here because this is the way He treats us. Okay, so so it would be easy if we were to play the role of God, and I know you're like I've never done that before, uh, but it would be easy if if we were playing the role of God here. To decide to save Jonah, but then decide uh, that his actions have disqualified him from being a prophet again, right? And now, if you're like, oh, I don't know what you mean. Have you ever had a friend that you said, you know, I forgive you, but we're no longer friends? Okay, this is the scenario that we would look at and we'd say, you know, God, you were completely justified in that. Uh, For him to rescue Jonah and then say, you know, Jonah, I am thrilled that you've repented. Um, but your actions have disqualified you from doing what I called you to do, just go on home. Okay? That we would, from a human standpoint, be like, that's fair. Uh, I, I get that. Uh, but, but this is not the way of God, and this is not the way He chooses to treat Jonah, and it's not the way He chooses to treat you. Okay, so so instead of reading of God's judgment of Jonah, we find these words that that then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And I love those three words, a second time. It's it's God comes in and he says he says, Jonah, I am thrilled that you repented. Let's press the reset button. Says let's let's do this. Again, let's learn from our mistakes. And I think this is an important point that, that God came to Jonah a second time, and He gives him the same commission as the first. He says, "I still believe in you. I'm still going to use you." Uh, and this isn't because Jonah is special because he's not. He's not. And this isn't. Uh, this is because God is good. This is because God is compassionate, and He's allowing Jonah to hit reset on life. And I think this is a beautiful. Beautiful attribute of God. In His mercy and His compassion, He allows us redos. And, and He does this with you. He does this with me. To think the danger is in those moments allowing our guilt to keep us sidelined after God has brought us a moment where hitting the reset button is entirely possible. Because Jonah could have. Because, because if, if I use some of my junk into Jonah's scenario, Jonah could have said, you know... Thank you so much I don't think I can do that. you know I hear you calling me the second time, but I didn't do it right the first time so I probably shouldn't do it at all the second time and so so God is sending Jonah and I want you to see this God is sending Jonah a, a person who was broken to a people who are broken to help them find their way to God that's what he's using he's using the Jonah story his very recent encounters into these people who are broken and and i think it's in this moment i think jonah is uniquely qualified uh to take these steps and to lead in this way and so so here we go verse number three so jonah arose so this is we part ways from chapter one now right uh, so Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. And this is the difference, because in chapter 1, instead of us reading, So Jonah, uh, we read, But Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. Uh, that's what he did before. Now he's changing course. Uh, and here he's hit the reset button. Verse number 3. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Okay? Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and none of us shall be overthrown. Okay? Now, there's, there's some commentators that I've read that believe that Jonah has gone straight from the well vomit into the city. Uh, which I'm like, yeah, that's weird, but it's entirely possible. I read that from more than one person. Uh, and so he goes into this city... Uh, and he says, he says, Yet forty days Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse number five. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Okay, let's, let's just underline those words. Because that's, that's pretty important. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast. And they put on sackcloth uh, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Okay, so Jonah comes in and, and he speaks eight words. Okay? And in the Hebrew, he actually only speaks five words. As it's translated, he only uses five words. And all of a sudden, these people begin to respond. And they believed God. They believed what God was speaking through uh, Jonah. And they call for this fast. And they begin to repent. And so let, let's continue. The word reached the king in Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. We're going to talk about that because that sounds a little like a weird thing to do. Um, But it's weird to us, not to them. That's basically what we're going to learn. Okay? And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone, this is key, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? I love this. Because this is in the the official decree. Who knows? God may turn and relent. And turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Okay, so so let's ask this question. What is God wanting Jonah to speak out against when it comes to the Ninevites? What's, what's he wanting Jonah to warn them about? That, that they would turn from their evil ways. That's very specifically what he told Jonah to go tell them. Turn from your evil ways ways. In fact, they were a brutal people who did unspeakable acts of brutality. Uh, in fact, they were violent to the point that making violence was their signature to the rest of the world. They ruled through fear, and in these words Jonah of Jonah's, they collide with the fact that continuing on this path will put them not against other nations, but will put them against God himself. This is what God is saying. If you continue to do this, you are going up against me. And to their credit, they realize how futile of attempt that would be. And so the king calls for the people of Nineveh uh, to repent into the season of repentance through fasting and covering themselves and their livestock uh, through sackcloth and ashes. And you're like, well, why the livestock? Because they want God's covering on those on those livestocks. Uh, they don't want their food supply to be taken by God. And so they say, hey, we're blanketed You want to talk about hedging your bets, everything that moves. We're going to put sackcloth on. And so here's here's what the sackcloth and the ashes. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see that quite a bit. Uh, and you'll you'll for us, you'll wonder, why would you do that? Here's what it means. It's a symbol of... Of, of debasement. It's a symbol of mourning uh, and repentance. So, so someone wanting to show his repentant heart would often wear sackcloth, uh, would sit in ashes, and they would put ashes on the top of their heads. And it sounds silly to us, but it wouldn't be to them. In fact, sackcloth was this really um, coarse material, usually made of, of black goat's hair. And I know you're always like, Hey, when I'm looking for a blanket, does this have goat's hair on it? Um, because I've always wanted to cuddle up with a goat, um, and and so it was it was very very uncomfortable. Uh, and then the ashes signif- sim- signified this desolation, this this point of ruining. I am undone before God. And so so in this case, their their actions were a symbol of the filthiness of their sin. That they are literally sitting in, praying that God. Would remove his wrath from them, the wrath that they very much deserved because of their sin. Okay, you with that? So now when you're like, hey everybody, just what I learned at church tomorrow, you know, and you can wear sackcloth. Let's go get a goat. Let's figure it out. Um. So, so here's what happens: the king utters this decree. People start to repent, uh, and then here, here's what we get to see in verse ten, and this is the beauty. of... Of this book, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God what relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them. Uh, he did not do it, and this this stirs the heart of a guy who consistently drops the ball. That God. Relented. Now, in other translations, I think there's great confusion about what God does because it says that basically it will allude that God changed his mind, um, which we know is, is not part of his attributes. Uh, but God does relent because this this warning was conditional. He says, hey, hey, I will not bless you. I will not only not bless you, I will bring my wrath upon you unless you do these things. And guess what they did? Those things. And so God relents in His mercy. Now, is He justified if He decides, nope, we're not going to give you that moment, we're not going to give you that opportunity to repent? He's absolutely justified. Their ways are evil. And so He chooses not to. And, and, so, so, and I think this is the beauty of the process of repentance, that, that God wants the heart, and at times He invokes His discipline, or He sends a warning in order to help our hearts catch up to our greatest need being Him. And then secondly, that we would turn away from lesser idols. And so this is what God has just told Jonah to tell the people of Nineveh. Turn away from that stuff. It's not what's best for you. And what's, I think, the struggle for them, the people of Nineveh, is that it's been working for them. But, but we're powerful We're strong. We we have a great reputation. We have we are well fed. And God says that's not what's best. And I wonder how often in our lives God sends somebody as a as a Jonah. And you say, but but the way I'm succeeding is working. The steps that I'm taking it's it's paying off. So so why wouldn't I keep doing this? And God comes in and says that's not what's best. And it will run out. Because eventually, eventually, you'll be coming up against me. And I assure you this, I do not lose. So so this this dawned on me this week this week as I was preparing that. For the past two weeks we've been using a word quite frequently. In fact, it's kind of been the theme of the last two chapters. Uh we, we use that word repent or repentance. Uh and and it dawns on me we've been using it rather loosely, uh, just assuming that we all understand what that truly means. And 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 so I think the question that we should ask is uh, that's fair to ask is is what is biblical repentance? And how do we how do we know the difference between feeling sorrow in a way that changes our lives and just saying that we're sorry? Uh, because have if, if you ever? Um, let's, let's, Let's use this word picture. Have you ever had two feuding kids? Uh, and let's say one takes a toy from the other one, and you being the responsible parent steps in, and, and what do we typically do? No, you're like, I don't know. This is a trick question, right? What do we typically do? We, we take the toy away from the kid who stole the toy, and we say, hey, you, you give that back to him. And then what do we do? We say, you say, I'm sorry, Right? And if you ever once in your life looked at that kid after, as they were saying they're sorry and believed, you know, I reached their heart today. I, I really do feel that they believe that they are sorry for that. No. No, you look at them, right? And they say, sorry. And you know this, that if you walked out of the room within seconds, they would go back to that bit same behavior. Right? Maybe not with that kid, but some other kid, some weaker kid, right? Just <clears throat> keep your mouth shut, you know? And so so how do we know? Right? How do we how do we see true repentance that we're seeing in Nineveh here? Right? How do we walk in repentance? How do we know that we're telling God more than hey, my bad, sorry? But then, really knowing that you're just supposed to say that because he caught you stealing a toy from a kid. How, how do we know that? And I think at times our attempts for repentance is is it's very similar to kids. And that's what that's this is what I'm learning. Adults are just kids 2.0, okay? Because the same junk we dealt with as kids, we still deal with as adults, uh, just maybe on a different and a larger scale. Um, and so, so it. it so, I think very often when it comes to us repenting, especially with god uh our we feel sorrow for our actions uh and it's it's not just saying i'm I feel sorrow for my actions it's it's knowing when I've been busted, truly longing to not return to that action and and so the message of John the Baptist, which is also the message of the gospel, uh, because Jesus will say the same kind of things, is that that when it when we repent, that we don't just say that we're sorrow sorry, but that we would produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So that when people will look at our lives, they would know okay, they're not doing that same thing again and again and again and again. They've they've turned away from it. They've put that sin to death. And so so what I want us to do is is. Add, and I attempted to try to do this a couple of different ways, um, and I didn't like any of them uh, because what I wanted to do was give you this one blanket and like definition of repentance, and then give you like five simple steps for repentance. Uh, but this is what I realized in that moment: I would be like the adult saying, uh, "If you do these five things um, and you would follow this process, then you are repent." But we can do those things and never engage our heart. We can we can do that dangerous game with God of having clean hands, but Never reaching our heart. I told God, I'm sorry. He was like, well, you, yes, you did say those words. You did say those words, but your heart didn't mean any of it. Okay? So so what I want us to see, and we're going to see this in, in 2 Corinthians 7, um, is is the motivation behind repentance. The motivation behind repentance. And, and it's been helpful to me, and I hope it's going to be helpful to you. Okay? So so this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, We're going to go in verse number... We're going to start in one, then we're going to jump to a couple other verses. Um, He will will say this. uh, Since we have these promises, okay? Circle those two words. These promises, uh, beloved, uh, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In short, he says, let us repent of our evil ways. Let us repent of those things so that we can be brought into holiness. Our holiness can be brought to completion in the fear of God. And, and now, here's, the, here's what I know about verse 1. It's very unfair of me to throw you into verse 1. Because he's told us to do something very real, very deep, very difficult. Okay? So it's unfair to throw you into verse 1. So let's talk about chapters 1 through 6. And you're like, oh my gosh, we might be here forever if he does that. We're, we're going we're gonna to cover it in about 25 seconds with a dance. I'm just joking. Uh, there will be no dancing. Um, and so, so let, let's recap chapters one through six because what Paul is telling them in Second Corinthians is beautifully powerful. Okay, so Paul is writing this the second letter, which will become obvious in a moment, uh, to the church of Corinth. And and from the beginning of this particular letter, he's been painting an incredible picture of what Christ has done for us. Most of everything that Paul will write to you. Uh, will lead you down seeing this beautiful picture of Jesus. Uh, and so so he begins with this this few strokes of the, the triumph of Jesus on the cross in the resurrection. And then he turns our attention to the role that we play in the reality of, of the gospel. And he'll, he'll say things like this, that, that we are ministers of the new covenant. Uh, that Jesus is the better covenant, as the book of Hebrews will tell us. Uh, so we are ministers of the new covenant that we live in the light of the gospel. There's this there's this great word picture that he uses that that we have become jars of clay holding this in, this incredible treasure of the gospel, and uh, for the, for the world to experience. And he'll say that that we live in this promise of a heavenly dwelling in Christ. Uh, he'll talk about how our bodies are breaking down and they are decaying and. Uh, and if you have a sore shoulder today, that's part of your decaying. Uh, it's all coming to an end for you. Uh, and, so, and so God, uh, he says, we, we have this heavenly dwelling, this this secured promise in Christ. Uh, and then then he brings us into what I think is, uh, out of all of 2 Corinthians, some of the most clarifying words about what is the role of the Christian With the rest of the world, and he'll say it this way: He will say that God has entrusted you. God has made you an ambassador for the ministry of reconciliation. He will say God's literally making his appeal to the world through you. So you have people in your this is what it means, uh, and this is off the subject, but you have people in your world that God is sending you to to reconcile them back to God. He says that's your responsibility. And then he turns our attention and he says that, that these realities are promises given to us by God. Secured by Christ, guaranteed by the, whole, by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That, that's what we get to experience. And so, Paul's encouragement all throughout his writings is that because of these things, uh, because these things are not just possible for you, they are parts of your new life in Christ, that we would do, as verse 1 says in chapter 7, that we would pursue holiness through repentance. That that would be it. And some of us are hearing that for the very first time. Like, oh, wait, I just thought I was supposed to not do bad things, and then God would love me more. He says, no, that you would pursue holiness. And in that pursuit, much of the time, it will take you through the road of repentance. And so in verses 2 through 7 in, in chapter 7, Paul explains the developments which, which brought us into our thoughts for, for repentance. In his previous letter, he had written some really hard words for them to hear. Uh, and while he was in Macedonia, uh, Titus comes to them, and he, he brings them great news. Uh, and, and I think what happens is that Paul, in that moment, is having a second thought. Uh, because he knows the right thing to say is the hard thing to say. And he said the hard thing in the first letter, but still there's a part of him that feels well, what he's going to say? He's gonna, I, I, I regretted it. I felt grief because of it. Because I was afraid it was too hard for you. Um, and so, but Titus comes to them in Macedonia and says, hey, I bring you great news. The Corinthians, they, they heard, they read your letter, they repented. And we are seeing fruit of their repentance. And that brings, him, brings us to uh, uh, verse number 8. It says this, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Okay? He said, I'll be honest, it was hard. I was worried. Once it got sent, I wanted, to re- I wanted to bring it back. It says even though I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And then verse ten, and I love this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Okay? For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces what? Death. Somebody's like, I didn't make it to 2 Corinthians. That's too far. Um, that worldly grief produces death. Okay? And, so, so here, and we're going to talk about the, each avenue, but, but just saying that I'm sorry but not really being sorry produces death. But a godly grief leads to salvation without regret. And I think this is the motivation of our repentance with God. This is the why, uh, right? And the difference in how we are motivated will affect the outcome. Because Paul says that now he doesn't regret bringing up topics that grieve them because their grief brought them to a point of sorrow in which they repented. So, so they turned from those behaviors and they turned towards God as their satisfier. That's, that's the goal of repentance. I'm turning away from the things uh, that are lesser guides and I am turning toward Him as my satisfier. Because all sin, understand this, all sin places us in this, I guess, go-between, of who's going to bring me more satisfaction. And sin will always tell you it will be more satisfying than God. And God has always said no. <laughs> he says no. And so then the, the second part of verse 9, Paul reveals that there are two different kinds of grief, and then he highlights them in verse 10, and he introduces this this godly grief and a worldly grief, and his equation is that, one produces salvation with no regret. The other produces death uh, with, the assumed, uh, with the assumption of great amounts of regret. And so, so if, we're, if we're to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, these are the two major fruits that we are producing. A life of no regret and a life filled with regret. And so it's, it's my belief here. This is, this is where the Ninevites reveal the effects of true repentance. Uh, because, because here's what we know about God. He will not be mocked, and He cannot be fooled. Okay? He will not be mocked, and He cannot be fooled. How do I know that? Because He said that. He has said that. And so, so some of us need to be very careful about the games that we play with Him, and the words that we say, believing that He can't re- look into our heart. Understanding this, that's the greatest news for us. That He knows us better than we know ourselves. That He knows when we're trying to put on a front. When He knows that we, we're saying one thing, but we really mean something else. He knows those things. And in His mercy, He still receives us through those things. And so so it's it's, it's my belief, this is what we're getting to see in the Ninevites. They're not playing games. They truly are repenting. That That God would see through the difference between his kind of grief, which is the message of Jonah, and the world's kind of grief, which is just to say you're sorry uh, with your mouth. And this leads us into those moments where, where we know repentance is necessary and, and we feel like we are at um, a fork in the road of what kind of repentance we want to step into. Uh, and, and really, uh, what I tend to feel with my own life is that it's not a fork in the road, it, it's like a trident, uh, in the road, and a trident is—it's like a fork mark, but it has three prongs. Okay, uh, that's in case Mark, mark was lost. Um, and so, so we have these three paths that we can choose. Okay, and 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 path one uh, is 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 like the kid who took another kid's toy, pushes him to the ground. Uh, we, we can call that mean kid Chris. Uh, and an adult steps in, makes the kid, you know, give back the toys, say you're sorry. Uh, and let's say that the kid does that. But here's what we know. That kid, because he's not really sorry, will return back to those actions. Right? And so what does the parent do? Well, the next time he says, we've been here before. And so they bring more and more discipline, more and more discipline. And if the goal is just to say that you're sorry, the kid succeeded. But that's not the goal. The goal is for the kid to change his heart and to be considerate of other people. And so, so let's just, in that scenario, is that repentance? Let's just ask that question, is it? No. No, not at all. It's not. Now, it looks a lot like repentance because you said the things that you're supposed to say when you repent. Right? You gave back, the, you made restitution. You gave back the toy. Right? Uh, but but in this scenario, the adult has all the power, and, and the kid merely has been busted for his actions. That's what's happened, and so there's there's no realizing the damage that he's done. There's no regret in his action. However, again, he's made the steps. Shouldn't that shouldn't that be enough? You ever told God that? Shouldn't that be enough? I said I was sorry. I said I was just kidding. I said with all due respect. So Paul says no that. Since that's that's a worldly kind of grief, and that's not going to produce anything in you but death because really it's just masking your jealousy and it's masking your selfishness and so we we eventually take the toy away from the kid, give it to the other kid, um, and then we try not to spend any time with chris anymore so so that that's one path okay this next path um is, is the path, I believe, of repentance that we most commonly take, which is still dangerous. And it still can be deadly. Okay, And this is why, if you find yourself... As I'm talking about repentance, here's what I've prayed this week. That the Holy Spirit will bring some sort of sinful action in your life to mind. And if you're anything like me, it's one that you keep returning to time and time and time again. And every time you confess your sin and you say... That was the last time, not again. God, not again. Then you come back the next time and you say, "God, not again." Then you go into it the next time, you're like, "God, no, 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 not going to, not going to. I did, I'm sorry. And so you have this this second path, and it's it's really feeling in your heart the sorrow, the grief involved it's just it's not enough to make you stop what you're doing that you know it grieves the heart of god but you just don't stop and and the honest truth in this path is that is that you love jesus but just in this moment you love sin more and that's what it is i love jesus but in this moment i love sin more And so I will deal with that confession. I will deal with that sorrow afterwards. I will keep laying claim to his promises of forgiveness, which are true. But there's a missing component on this path. Because here's, here's what happens typically on this path. Is we say, you know, I'm getting serious about this now. And so we start to roll up our sleeves, right? And we start to pull up our boots. And we say, Jesus, sit back and watch. I'm about to ninja kick this sin to death, and you get into it, and it beats you. And Jesus says, "No, I, I I'll overcome that." You're like, "No, no, 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 I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to beat this. I'm going to beat this. Watch this." And it becomes what we, we we're talking about this a little bit on Wednesday night in the merge groups. It becomes what we call white knuckle redemption. You know, I'm just going to try really hard not to do really bad things, but the more I really think about those really bad things, the more I really want to do them. Right? It's it's like those memes about, you know, when you're on a a diet, you're like, I'm going to eat so well, ten minutes later you're crying for a donut. Right? And so we say, in my own power, I'm beating this. I'm going to repent from this sin. So I'm going to, and there's a lot of me in this path. There's a lot of me on this process. And it, it really, what it involves is me doing something and looking at God and saying, Check me out. I just whipped it. Just tore it up. And the tragedy is that we keep staying on this path. Because we're not utilizing Christ's power. Our eyes aren't on Jesus. Our eyes are still on that sin. And so when we repent, we do feel bad about it. We honestly do. But we just don't feel bad about it enough to bring Christ into the equation. And then we have this, this third path. And, and I think... Yeah, yeah. Let's go. Let's start wrapping this up. I had some other things I was going to say, but I feel like we nailed it. Um, but, but, but then we, we have this, this third path, uh, and, and it's, it's grief over our sins where we see the great worth and we see the love of God while seeing how insignificant the offers of sins are. Where we see how insignificant lesser idols are compared to Him. And we see in those moments the things that are breaking His heart, and all of a sudden it breaks our heart to a point where we acknowledge we can't defeat it on our own, so we need the literal power of Christ to overcome. And this is this is I think this is what Paul says it leads us to to having repentance with no regret. With no regret. Now I think I think that word can mean a couple of different things. That when we say, okay, what does it mean to have no regret? I think I think one of the possibilities, and it's not limited to these, but I think one of the possibilities is that um that I, I think it means no regret. It means that you you look at whatever that action was, whatever that evil way was to keep us in the book of Jonah, whatever that evil way was, you look at it and because you've repented from it, because you see a greater worth in Christ than you do in the sin, you look back at that sin one day and you say, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? That that appetite that I desperately had at one point, it's been exposed it's been found wanting. So I have no regret. I have no desire to return to that moment to that action. that sin's been exposed for the fraud that it is, that there is no power in it to draw you back that kind of kind of and, and then then I think also that it leads us to no regret because we truly believe that those sins have been taken to the cross. That that appetite, we don't call it an appetite for destruction, but that's what it is. Because all sin leads you to destruction. That appetite for whatever that evil weight is, we get to see that it's been dealt with on the cross, therefore, has lost all of its control. Especially over us. It says, I that sin can no longer declare us guilty, because in Christ we aren't. It takes us back to these words that, that I am no longer, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. It's Christ who lives in me. That when we get to see Jesus overcome our greatest enemies And God glorified in the process. And this draws our hearts to Him more and more and more. And now here's what we need to know about repentance. When people repent, God is glorified. So you say, how can I glorify God today? What sin are you not repenting of? What evil way are you still flirting with? What battle are you fighting in your own strength? The key to repentance is, is not rolling up your sleeves and it's not working harder. Okay? And I know that sounds weird. Because there's parts of that that's important. Like, yes, I don't need to go to that place if every time I go to that place it leads me to an evil way. But that's just like saying, well, if I just keep my hands clean they'll never get dirty, but I never dealt with my heart. In our merge group the other night, we were talking about it. And, and he says, you know, the key to holiness is that we would simply keep our eyes on Christ to the point that we adore Him more than we adore anything else. And it was such a novel thought to me. <laughs> like, oh, you mean, you mean in my battle with my sins that, that really all I need to do is look at Christ and His beauty would be enough that my affections would be for Christ, that I would adore Him in such a way that, that, that nothing else is going to matter. And the Bible promises us that that is exactly the case. Do I adore Christ more than I adore sin? And in this room, that answer is easy, right? Because it's Sunday morning. You, you generally like the people here. But in those other moments, that's when we have to decide which is which. And this is what I love. Okay, And this brings us back to Jonah. Jonah repents in chapter 2, and what does God do? He says, let's hit reset, man. Let's go back, let's do what I told you to do. The people of Nineveh in chapter 3 repent. And what does God do? He relents. Our wrath isn't coming upon you. So that's, that's good news for us when it comes to our repentance. We don't have to fear it. God doesn't sit over us saying, Well, you did that and I'm still mad at you about it. That's a horrible impersonation of God. God. Um, yeah, Daniel's like, yes, you're right. That's not your best. Um, but we fear, this is what I realize in my own life. I fear repenting because I'm afraid God's going to see something in me that I don't want him to see. And this is what I'm learning. He already sees it. He already sees it. And he says, until we deal with it, we're not going to get past this point. Okay? So whatever you got going on, let's call it what it is, whatever your evil way is, whatever your sinful activity is, whatever that temptation may be, repent. Turn from that. Turn your eyes off of the things of this world and put your eyes and gaze it upon Christ. Our desire this week is to love God. Bye. Please stand with me. We want to offer some prayer with you this morning. If you, if you need somebody to battle alongside you, we want to pray uh, with you. Keith and Kim and, and Mark and Kelly, they'll be up here. They want to pray with you. If you've never found peace because you don't know Jesus, we want to talk with you through that process. Uh, nothing gets celebrated more than that around here. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you care for us, that you, that you love us in so many ways, that, that you allow us to hit the reset button. Father, I pray that your spirit in this moment would lead us to repentance. And not just a repentance where we say that we're sorry, but we don't mean it. But, but that we would, at a heart level, at a life level, at, at a level where you are cutting away parts of us so that other parts can grow even, even better and even stronger. That we would avoid hearing the whisper of the enemy. That repentance will lead us to more guilt. Father, what I pray is that we would repent because you deserve our very best. And we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.